0: One is a real item of praise, but it's going to present a challenge for us because we still need some volunteers and some help in different areas, and so we need folks to, to volunteer. The registration for this year's Chafer Conference as of today has exceeded all previous conferences. So we're going to ha- just registrations alone are 180, and we may have more than that show up now. Usually, not everyone shows up at the same time, but we usually have more of a turnout in the evening than we do uh, than we do during the day. but it will be a full house. I think we still have most of the chairs up from the la- the don't we yeah from from when we had the last uh, israel event, so that's good uh, so it's going to be crowded, so that'll be great and it'll be good to uh, see everybody here and then um, so volunteer, if there's any way you can help out. We need some people to help with shuttling, I think, and just a few other, uh, few other items. So that will be on March 10th to 12th. And a reminder that this week's schedule is normal. We'll have Bible class t- tonight. Obviously, we're here. We'll have Bible class tomorrow night. We will not have Bible class on the Thursday night of the conference Conference is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we discovered a long time ago that the attendance on Thursday night was very, it was below minimal well below par because people are just tired after running everything on the conference, so it's good to give everybody a little bit of a of a uh, of a break so having said that, let's um, I don't think there's anything else I think that just about covers it. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then we'll open in prayer. Now, before we pray, I want to uh, mention two things that we need to genuinely be in prayer about. Most of these you know, but just a reminder for those who are also listening uh, live stream, we need to pray for the conference next week, but please be in prayer for uh, George Meisinger. George as everybody knows, has cancer. George is not going to be able to make the conference this year because of the uh, medication that he is on and and some of that just leaves him extremely uh, exhausted and weary. And he uh, was hoping he would make it, but at the last minute he had to to decide not to come. That's one important uh, priority prayer request. The other is what's going on in Ukraine. Right now it is about wake-up time for Jim Myers in Kiev. He'll be leaving probably in about three hours to fly to Brazil. Uh, Phyllis is going with him, and they will be teaching in Brazil for the next uh, two or three weeks before he returns. I think he returns at the end, right near the end of March. And uh, so be in prayer for the group in Ukraine. Be in prayer for him and his trip to Brazil. Also be in prayer for um a team of pastors that are going over there this has been planned for some time brett nasworth with dm2 as t- going over there with a the group mark Musser usually goes over right just about the time of the chafer conference he'll be going over the i think it's the mon- sunday or monday after the chafer conference um, to teach in the bible college and to preach in the church and cover things while jim's gone If you don't know it, Mark used to work with Jim up until 86. I mean, 2006 or 2007. Um, And then Mark Perkins and some others are going over for a. They're going to do these DM2. That's Discipleship Ministry uh, two uh, things that they do, teaching um, people how to teach the Word and going around doing these mini conferences in a number of different churches. So. with this international situation over there, uh, we really do need to pray. Pray that Putin does not invade because Ukraine is a very open and extremely free country in terms of the gospel. Russia closed down things about five years ago. They had instigated some pretty rigorous laws to to, uh, make it almost impossible for missionaries to come over there you could uh, if you were coming over on a missionary on a on just a business visa short-term visa like most missionaries had they reduced them to where they were no no they weren't good for any longer length of time than 90 days and before you could apply to renew it you had to leave the country and you had to be out of the country for 90 days before you could reapply, so that pretty much shut down any long-term missionary activity. And a lot of those missionaries, because they'd learned Russian, their materials were in Russian, they'd been ministering in a Russian language environment for many years, left Russia and went to Ukraine because it was so open. So there are a lot of ministries, uh, Christian, solid Christian ministries across Ukraine. And we need to pray that that God would restrain Putin from invading Ukraine so they can have freedom and for the purpose of the expansion of the gospel. And that's a priority. So having said that, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful we can bring these requests before you in prayer. We're thankful that we know that you control history and that you are working things out to, uh, all together for good according to your plan and your purpose. And, Father, we pray right now in the midst of this uncertainty, the chaos that is going on, that that um, and the uncertainty related to uh, Russia and Putin's intentions towards Ukraine, we pray that you would restrain him that he would not, he would choose not to invade. We pray this so that the gospel can go forth and so that there would continue to be a freedom and openness in Ukraine. Father, we continue to pray for Jim, uh, for Phyllis, for the ministry they have there, for the, his trip to Brazil, that he might uh, be well and have the energy and drive to, to deal with all the teaching that he has on his schedule the next three weeks. We continue to pray for the conference, and above all, we pray for George Meisinger and his health. Father, we pray for our time together in your word this evening. Pray that we might uh, have a time when we can think through this wonderful book that we studied for the last couple of years, that we may come to a greater appreciation understanding of it in our minds as a result of tonight's study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, what I want to do tonight... Is something y'all are familiar with? Is at the beginning and end of a series, especially one when we've that we've been in for a long time, and one that involves a rather lengthy book, is to do a a flyover again. Just go back and review what it is that we have learned and what we studied and focus on the key ideas and key elements that are present in the book. Just, just to think through uh, a book of Scripture so that we can understand and review some of the major doctrines that, that were there, just in terms of a brief uh, reminder as we take one final look at, uh, at the book of Acts. As I pointed out last time, Acts was written by Luke. Acts is one of the great dramas in Scripture. and it's really the second act. We've come back from the intermission. the intermission being the 40 day period of time between the resurrection and the Ascension. Act one was the Gospel of Luke. Then there's this it ends with the ascension, of, I mean excuse me, ends with the resurrection of Christ and his resurrection appearances. To the disciples, but here in uh, <clears throat> Acts, he picks up with that he 's addressed it to Theophilus, who is a Gentile, for the purpose that I pointed out last time of giving him a clear understanding of how the church expanded that this was not something that was done through human means and human effort, but it was ultimately done. Through God the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say it's not done through human means or human effort, it doesn't mean that the disciples just sat there and folded their hands and waited for the Holy Spirit to kick them. Uh, there's a there, God may control history; Jesus Christ controls history, but you still have to cut your grass. Think about that. You still we as human beings, we're volitional agents, and we still have to choose to obey or disobey. We have to get up off of our Rumpus and do what the Word of God says to do. So th- there's those two aspects work together in human history, the divine, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so what we see here is how the, the, the church begins from a small, uh, small innocuous beginning where it is nothing more than a a Jewish sect that's virtually unknown outside of Judea and Galilee, Uh, a sect that has gone into hiding for the most part because of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And now because of the resurrection, there is new hope, And the disciples have learned of a new significant mission that they're given in reference to a coming age, but they're not real clear on it. The very last thing we read about Jesus teaching them before he ascends is that during this 40-day period, he taught them about the kingdom of God. So for those 40 days, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, and the more that I study this topic, it's one of the least understood in Scripture, but it is one about which much can be said. There was a Lutheran pastor, an itinerant pastor, who was rather impoverished because he wasn't paid well uh, in the 19th century by the name of George N.H. Peters. And he wrote a, it is, the print copy is a three-volume, about a two-and-a-half-inch thick uh book, each volume, and in small print, probably 10-point typeface at best, on, called, entitled The Theocratic Kingdom. It is the most in-depth study on the kingdom of God uh, in print, and there was a, another book called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean, who was the founder of Grace Theological Seminary which was a Grace Brethren Seminary, a dispensational school similar to Dallas Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, uh, that says basically the same thing. That's a one-volume work, and if you don't want to sit down and work your way through uh, Peter's work, then you need to read Alva J. McLean's work, and they are in 100% agreement with one another, and I agree mostly with their positions. Uh, George N.H. Peters wrote most of his three volumes on scraps of paper. He was so poor he couldn't go buy paper. So he had napkins and he had, you know, blank pieces of paper on the back of something else, uh, tablets, whatever, and that's what he wrote on. And it, so the kingdom of God is not a small subject, is my point. And it underlies this doctrine, as we've seen in our study of Matthew and in our study of Acts, we saw it in our study of Hebrews, is a crucial doctrine for being able to understand and interpret uh, Scripture, that the kingdom was offered to Israel, the kingdom is postponed because they rejected the Messiah, that in place that there's a parenthesis now in terms of God's plan for Israel because Israel is being temporarily set aside as God's primary agent in the world, And during this intervening period, there is a new entity called the church. The church is born on uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and the end of the church age will be with the rapture of the church will, will come at some time in the future. Could be tonight, might not be for 100 years or 200 years. We don't know. It could be at any moment. At that instant, you and I will be transported into the presence of our Lord and almost immediately we will be evaluated at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. At that time we are given rewards. Those rewards have to do with how, uh, how well we have served the Lord in this life, how well we've walked by the Spirit, how much we've grown and matured. And on the basis of that evaluation, it will be determined what our roles and responsibilities will be when we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom, when he comes in his kingdom, when the Ancient of Days, according to Daniel chapter 7, uh, gives the kingdom to the, to the Son, the Son of Man, and he comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation period and establishes his kingdom. This is why this is such an important doctrine, because it gives us a framework on why we're living the Christian life today, why this is so important, and what the ultimate goal is. And it also shows that it can't be understood apart from all of the Old Testament promises, and it can't be understood apart from God's plan and purposes for Israel, because the promise for Israel was this future kingdom, a literal kingdom ruled by a son of David on the literal throne in literal Jerusalem. And so all of these things fit together. So, what our Lord is doing is during this forty day period is teaching the disciples how uh, things have changed because the kingdom is postponed, and it's an elucidation of what He taught in Matthew chapter 13 in the parables of the kingdom and preparing them for the the, the relationship of their future ministry in the church age in relation to the kingdom. Now not all of these things sunk in because their their last basic question to them is, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom in Acts 1-6? And Jesus' response is basically, no, it's not at this time. Uh, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's not the issue. The issue is your role in the in the intervening age in relationship to God the Holy Spirit. And Acts 1-8 becomes your prime verse for Acts, as we've seen. Jesus said, but you will receive power... "...when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the, even to the remotest part of the earth." And so in our map, we see that the starting point is Jerusalem. And this gives us the outline for the book. The first part of the drama focuses on Jerusalem. The primary player is Peter. He's the major character Uh, the major person in the first seven chapters. John and uh, Stephen, who is one of those appointed to help the apostles in Acts chapter uh, 7, are minor players. John never speaks. Stephen doesn't really speak in uh, this part, or he does in Acts 7, rather. Um, But John never speaks. Peter's the major character and the focal point. So the first part, the first seven chapters take place in, in Jerusalem. And then a persecution arises after they have stoned Stephen and the church begins to scatter and they go out into Judea and Samaria. That's the second part of the description. The Lord said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. And that covers the middle part of this drama. You might call it the second A scene within this act. Um, uh, It's a broad scene, covers many different uh, areas. Uh, Acts 8 through 12. It's not really one scene, it's a bunch of scenes, but it's the second division in this act, Uh, 8 through 12, where we see the expansion of the church into Samaria uh, through Philip, who's one of those that are chosen, one of the seven chosen in Acts 6. And he takes the gospel into Samaria. You also see a, a returned emphasis on Peter. He takes the gospel to uh, Simon the Tanner, who is one, uh, demonstrating a few things there because Simon's one of the, those who are socially, culturally rejected because he works with dead animals. He's a tanner. He's tanning hides. So he's ceremonially unclean uh, most of the time. And yet Peter is living with him. It's at that time that he gets direction from God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, the Gentiles are living in Caesarea by the sea. And so all of this, he's he's living over here uh, in Joppa, which is uh part of Judea, and then he takes the gospel up to Caesarea to the Gentiles, and we so see this expansion. And then uh following this, this period in, in Acts 8 through 12, we see the third part of the book which is the expansion of the church to the remote parts of the earth, and that's covered in chapters 13 through 28. In the middle section in chapter 8, actually we're introduced, 8 and 9, we're introduced to the Apostle Paul, and we get his conversion. And then in Acts chapter 13, he and Barnabas head out in the first missionary journey. And so there are four basic missionary trips. Just a brief review, there's the first trip, which is southern Galatia, basically, as well as Cyprus that's covered in chapters 13 through 14. There's a pause when he goes back to Jerusalem to give a report. In chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council where they're dealing with the question of what do we do with these Gentiles now that we have them. And then... Um, uh, so he is in that, area, that's the first missionary journey, and he writes one book, the book of Galatians, one letter, rather, the epistle to the Galatians. Then he goes on the second missionary journey. Second missionary journey, he goes back and revisits the places he went on the first missionary journey in South Galatia, but then the Holy Spirit prohibits him from going into either the province of Asia or into, um, the areas of, uh, of Bithynia. And he directs him across to, to uh, Troas, where eventually he where he has a vision to come over to Macedonia. And so the second missionary journey focuses on going to Macedonia and Greece. And uh, during the second missionary journey, when he's in Corinth, he will write two epistles. So the first journey, one epistle, second journey, two epistles, first and second Thessalonians. And that second journey is covered in Acts, 5, uh, Acts chapter 16 through 18. Then the third missionary journey is covered in, in chapters 18 by the end of the chapter, 18 to 21. And during the third missionary journey, he writes first and second Corinthians and Romans. So first journey, one epistle, second journey, two epistles, third journey, three epistles. And then after the third missionary journey, he went to Rome where he was arrested. He spent two years in prison there in Caesarea. Uh, And then he eventually made his way uh, on a little cruise at the expense of the Roman Empire, ends up in Rome, where he is a prisoner for another two years. So four years he's sort of sidelined by being in prison. And while he is in Rome, he wrote the four prison epistles, Philemon, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. Then he was released. He goes on another journey, visited several areas which we studied last time, probably went to Spain went to areas in Illyricum, which is modern uh, Yugoslavia, went to Macedonia, uh, revisited Ephesus, and eventually made his way back to Rome. He's arrested, and there's the final imprisonment. Uh, During the fifth journey, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, and then in his final imprisonment, he wrote the epistle of uh, 2 Timothy so that that's sort of the overview and uh, now I want to drill down on this just a little bit more so as we look at the first seven chapters here's the overview uh in terms of those first three divisions god uh through the holy spirit empowers them in the first first uh tell, tells them about in the first chapter directs comes upon them and directs them in the second chapter uh to expand their witness in jerusalem uh, God then expands their witness in from six eight to nine thirty one. Expands that witness uh, out through the um, uh, Judea and Samaria, and then third, God expands the church to the end of the earth. So let's just look at each one of these little sections here. In the first chapter, we, Luke is focused on the basic theme that God, the Holy Spirit, is the real agent of church growth. It's not these obscure 12 leaders that are in Jerusalem. But he starts off showing how small and almost irrelevant this group group is. It's obscure. They're just so small, they're just living, uh, the 12 are just living in the upper room. They can gather together another uh, 138 Uh, for a meeting in order to select a disciple that replaces Judas, and they do that. But his focal point is on the fact that this is a small beginning. And then he's going to give us progress reports all through Acts showing how it expands and that this is beyond human capability. That's the theme of this book, the power of the Holy Spirit that built the church in Acts It's still the power of the Holy Spirit that builds the church today. The problem we have today is too few Christians want to walk by the Spirit. So uh, the expansion is based on uh, the work of God the Holy Spirit. After chapter 1, the uh, disciples are staying in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit said to wait there until... uh, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ told them to wait there until God the Holy Spirit came. And on the day of Pentecost, a day that's a high holy day and on the Jewish ca- uh, festival calendar, one of three days requiring all Jewish males, whether they were local to Judea and Samaria or whether they were scattered in the diaspora, they are to gather together uh, to worship at the temple. So there could have been as many as uh, two or 300,000. Uh, who visited Jerusalem during this time on the day of Pentecost. And as the disciples came together, the 12 came together in the upper room to prepare to go to the temple, uh, somewhere between there and, and the temple, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them. It was an audiovisual scenario. They heard a sound from heaven like a rushing wind, like a tornado, and then they could see Tongues of fire over each one of them, and that refers only to the 12. It doesn't refer to the 150. As I pointed out when we studied this, the 150 would not have stayed for 10 days in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. Uh, So there were um, both men and women in the room. They would not have stayed together all that time, Uh, it was just the apostles and then the holy spirit came upon them this is the beginning of the ministry of god the holy spirit to each individual believer this is the baptism and dwelling and filling of god the holy spirit coming at one time upon each of the 11 and or 12 and as they are there then they are they go on to the temple precinct and they are uh, speaking in languages they haven't heard luke makes it very clear that there are um, uh, Jewish visitors there from all these different areas of the empire listing them in Acts 2 that they would have heard the gospel and then returned back to their uh, their homes taking the gospel with them. So this would have been the first uh, missionary outreach was really these, these uh, Jews returning to their home. Uh, the question that they ask is what in the world is going on with these guys because uh, as galileans they they 're pretty ignorant and yet they 're able to speak in all of these different languages and some of them accuse them of being drunk, although I have yet to see anybody uh, get drunk who could speak their native language better, much less speak a foreign language that they had never learned before so uh, that's an odd explanation, but Peter reminds them by quoting from Joel chapter two, uh, thirty-two and following, uh, the, or Joel two thirty and following, that this is the kind of thing Jews should expect to happen because this is what God promised would happen at the time of the day of the Lord when the kingdom would be established. These are the same kinds of miraculous events. He's not saying that this is the fulfillment of the Joel 2.30 passage. He's saying this is similar to the kinds of things that Joel predicted. Uh, What Joel predicted would happen didn't happen at this time. Nothing that Joel predicted took place on the day of Pentecost. What did take place on the day of Pentecost, which was speaking in unknown, uh, previously unlearned languages, was not predicted in Joel 2.30. He's just saying this is like that. You should have expected this kind of a thing. Uh, He goes through uh, quotes from the Joel 2.30 passage, and then he challenges them in relation to their belief in Jesus of Nazareth, that he was attested by many signs and wonders, and that... He was delivered up by the plan of God and was raised up from the dead. Resurrection is another major theme that we've seen all the way through, all the way through the book of Acts. This is what really irritated the Sadducees in Acts chapter 4 as a result of uh, Peter and John's preaching, their emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this became a major problem later on. Uh, in Paul's ministry, and he used that to his own, for his own purposes to cause a division among the Sanhedrin when he was being uh, interviewed by them. But throughout Acts, we see this emphasis again and again and again on Jesus' resurrection. Now, that has a number of significances, as we've seen, and but above all, it's an attestation to the fact that God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. This was not something that was uh, that was fabricated. It's not a hoax. That he was a, his resurrection was attested to by numerous numerous people. So this is also in fulfillment of prophecy, which uh, Peter mentions uh, in terms of uh, his quotations at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 25 and following. We also get a report here that as a result of this, that there's an expansion of the church, 3,000 believed. So there were 3,000 added to the church that day. That would be a probably a, uh, a mixed audience. Uh, later on in chapter 4, verse uh, 3 or 4, uh, or verse 4, 5,000 males are added to the church. But in this first incident, 3,000 are added to the church, and there is going to be a distinction made during this time that, that instead of continuing to meet in synagogues, although they did that at times, they would begin to meet, uh, together in order to study the word and to encourage, uh, one another. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods. This wasn't a, a socialist type of experiment. It shows that there's an intimacy and that they were depending upon one another for their physical and material uh, sustenance. In chapter 2, I um, mean, excuse me, in chapter 3, Peter and John come back uh, at another time, and they heal the layman, and that gives them occasion for Peter to give another sermon where he promises in the third chapter... Um, get this up on the screen, in the third chapter, he promises that if the Jews would repent and accept Christ as Messiah, that the times of refreshing would come. So they could have technically responded, as I said, but they still would have had to go through the judgments of A.D. 70. But we wouldn't have had a lengthy uh, church age period because once Israel repents, then that is going to domino into the coming of the Messiah. But they did not, and so the church age has lasted now almost 2,000 years. As a result of that message, in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, and again, Peter, uh, and and not again, but uh, Peter uses resurrection as an issue when he addresses them. They try to prohibit them. ...from preaching the gospel. And uh, in verse 18, they commanded them not to speak at all... ...nor to teach in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 is a great promise... ...that you should underline and memorize... ...nor is there salvation in any other... ...for there is no other name under heaven given among men... ...whereby we must be saved. They are told not to preach the gospel but they continue to do that uh, uh, anyway. They are uh, eventually released, and they go back to the other disciples uh, who have been uh, praying for them. In Acts chapter 5, we have the episode of Ananias and Sapphira who lie against the Holy Spirit. The issue there was that they, uh, like everybody else, is selling their assets and converting them into cash so that that can be used for the benefit of others in the body of Christ. And the Ananias and Sapphira sold some of their land, but they're going to keep back part of the money for themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's that they lied about it. They wanted everybody to think they were a lot more generous than they actually were, and so they lied about it. And at this stage of the church, in its infancy, God the Holy Spirit enacts a miraculous discipline upon them, and they both instantly are executed by God the Holy Spirit, the sin unto death, because that is designed to protect the church from this kind of corruption at this early, early stage of, of infancy. Then from this point on, there is uh, uh, an emphasis on uh, the expansion through uh, many signs and wonders, Mentioned in Acts chapter five verse twelve, uh, we started with the miracle of Peter and John healing the lame man in the beginning part of Acts chapter three, and all of these miracles are designed to attest to their credentials that they were indeed who they uh, they claimed to be. Now, in Acts, uh, uh, in this period, also we see a number of attacks against the church, both external attacks from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as the internal corruption represented by uh, Ananias and Sapphira. The apostles, uh, Peter and John, are uh, imprisoned, and then they are uh, later freed, and they are... In a, in, a mirac- in a miraculous way, are the, the God, the Holy Spirit works upon the, the leaders and they are released from prison. An angel of the Lord comes in verse 19, opens the prison, prison doors and brings them, uh, brings them out and orders them to go and to proclaim the words of this life to the people. So this, again, shows that God the, God is working to protect the church and to expand, uh, expand the church. They're put on trial again, and then when they do that, Peter makes his famous statement that we ought to obey God rather than men, so we're not going to submit to your orders not to proclaim the gospel. This is when Gamaliel makes a very famous statement and says to the rest of the Sanhedrin in verse 35, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, followed him. He was slain. It came to nothing. And and he says in verse 38, Now I say to you, keep away from these men, leave them alone. For if this, is, uh, this plan is, is the work of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you cannot overthrow it, lest... Uh, lest you even be found to fight against God. Those are words that Luke chose to quote because in the words of an unbeliever, this uh, carried weight because God was indeed at work building and expanding the church. And the church expanded so much and so rapidly, and there was a a, a division that came up within the church because you had uh, those who were, living in Judea or Galilee who were, who were local. And you had the Hellenized Jews who were from out of town. Some of the Hellenized Jews had s- sort of reached a, uh, an age where they had moved back to Judea. And so there was a need to help distribute financial aid uh, to the widows. And the widows of the Hellenized, in the Hellenized Jewish community felt as if they were overlooked. So it was necessary to uh, organize an administrative uh, work to serve, make sure that they were getting the financial aid that they needed. So there was an, a uh, they appointed seven men here in Acts chapter six who showed spiritual maturity, and these included Stephen and Philip. And so in Acts one through seven, which is basically the first part of the of the. Uh, of the past of the book that dealing with the expansion, uh, I mean the the church in Jerusalem. it concludes with the death of Stephen. He's arrested and put on trial somewhat illegally, as we saw, and he gives a magnificent address starting on starting in chapter seven. The whole thing's covered in chapter seven where he rebukes his Jewish audience and demonstrates, historically that they fit the pattern that has been established since the beginning of the Jewish race that they has, there has been a trend towards rejection of God and uh, his messengers. He begins off t- talking about Abraham, and even Abraham had partial obedience when he left Ur of the Chaldees, for God had told him to leave all of his relatives, and he took his father, and his nephew with him. Uh, he didn't uh, separate completely. Then uh, he emphasized that Israel had a pattern of initial rejections of God, and, and he covers this whole pattern uh, as seen, uh, in, I mean, from verses 6 to 38, and he, he illustrates it with people such as Joseph and Moses and the rejection by the others of Joseph and Moses. He notes the uh, rebellion uh, against Moses by the people that just uh, 40 days after Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he's met with a rebellion of all the people. It doesn't take them long, and they're turning against God. He shows how the people, uh, once they got into the land, uh, turned to idolatry. They weren't faithful to Moses' teaching, and that even when the tabernacle and later temple were built... Uh, This was simply a place of worship. It was not intended to be a permanent manifestation of God, but that they did not keep the law fully in relationship to the worship in the tabernacle and temple. And during this period of time, because they would turn back to idolatry, God would send prophets, and they resisted the Holy Spirit. They killed the prophets, and they broke God's law the the uh, Sanhedrin became so incensed at his at what he was saying they became convicted of its truth that they began to pick up stones and began to stone him and it's at that point that we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus who is standing at the edge of the crowd holding their garments so Stephen's speech is brought in to um, give us insight into the ultimate reason why God has set aside Israel temporarily uh, during the present age because they have not only rejected the prophets, but they have rejected the prophet, as Deuteronomy said, who was like Moses, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who was greater than Moses. And this also serves as a transition to, uh, to away from Peter. We begin to make the transition to focus on Saul, who is the will be the Apostle Paul. In chapter eight, now we get into the uh, next section. Um, chapter eight, the expansion into Judea and Samaria. Then uh, we see the expansion through Philip. Uh, Philip goes out in Acts chapter eight and goes to um, Samaria where there's a huge response to the gospel and to Philip's preaching of the gospel, and he brings uh, John and Peter up from Jerusalem in order to baptize these recent converts. That shows the unity of the church. Following the conversion of the Samaritans, uh, he is whisked away by God the Holy Spirit to meet with the Ethiopian eunuch, and there he communicates the gospel to this Ethiopian who is not the first gentile because he is considered a proselyte and he is reading through Isaiah and he's confused about the scripture Philip explains it to him and he believes in Jesus as the Messiah and then Philip baptizes him this is the prelude to chapter 9 where the focus is on Saul and Saul is <clears throat> Saul is saved as a result of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to him on the road to Damascus. This is significant because it gives us an understanding of the Apostle Paul's background, how he was saved three times in the the book. Paul is is going to tell this story. This is the first time, and then it's retold by Paul two more times later on. So that shows us that the conversion of Paul is crucial to understanding the growth of the church in the first century. So at this point, they're expanding out from Judea and Samaria uh, to the uttermost part of the earth. Now we come to the third section, which actually begins about uh, ver- right after verse uh, 32 when... Um, Peter is going to be called to take the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. This is, shows the expansion of the church to Antioch because of the persecution that broke out after the death of Stephen. The, church, uh, the, the apostles had to leave, or most of the Christians had to leave Jerusalem. Some of the apostles were able to stay. Most of the Christians left, and they scattered not only throughout Judea and Samaria, but they also scattered to places up in Syria, such as Antioch. And so this church is established in Antioch that will become the the mother church for the missionary activities of the Apostle Paul. So it's during this time that you have the three uh, uh, missionary journeys. The first two are covered in Acts 12.25 through 19.20. The first journey, I have a map of that in just a minute. Let's go to the map. The the, uh, first journey... He leaves Antioch here. This is uh, Jerusalem way down here in the south. Caesarea, where Cornelius uh, was stationed as, as a centurion. Uh, up to the north in Syria. Uh, see, the furthest, most part of Israel is right about where the pointer is there, south of Sidon, southwest of Damascus. These are all in southern Syria. Antioch is in northern Syria. Uh, Syria. And so on their first missionary journey, they go to Cyprus, then up to the southern coast of modern Turkey, the area there where they go to Antioch, Pisidia, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then he retraces his steps and goes back to Antioch. So it's a short, uh, short journey. They have numerous converts, uh, also, they meet a lot of opposition and hostility from the Jews in the synagogues, but one of the most significant converts is going to be Timothy, who will become his traveling companion in the second journey. Following the first journey, Paul went back down to Jerusalem in order to give an expan- a, a progress report to the apostles as to what has taken place during the uh, first missionary journey. Uh, What has happened in the meantime is the word has gotten out that the church is now going to the Gentiles because, of course, Peter had taken the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11, had reported on that, and so now by Acts chapter 15, this becomes a problem. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? Do they become Jewish? Do we become Gentiles? What's the deal? And so the Jerusalem council met, and this is covered in Acts chapter 15. This is sandwiched between the first journey and the second journey. Then in the second journey, uh, he leaves, he retraces his steps, does his follow-up in uh, Lystra, Iconium and Derby, And then as they go to Antioch, it's the question is, where do we go from here? Uh, Instead of going into the province of Asia, the Holy Spirit prevents them. We don't know how, but they're not to go there yet. He will eventually get there, but not now. So it's a matter of the Lord's timing. Sometimes you know what God wants you to do, but he says it's not the right time. A few years down the road, maybe. Uh, they are prevented from going to Bithynia and Pontus in the north, so they end up at Troas on the Aegean Sea. This is where he has his vision of uh, a man uh, calling from Macedonia, and so they catch the boat, go across to Neapolis, and then on the second missionary journey, they visit the, and establish churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. This is part of the province of Macedonia. They meet opposition from the Jews there. He's thrown into jail in Philippi, and uh, he's, he's beaten, whipped, Against roman law it 's not till later they tells him that he 's a Roman citizen that upsets them, and so they kick him out of town, heads down to Thessalonica he 's only there for a short time, maybe two or three months at the most and then the Jews cause an uproar against him he has to leave, goes to Berea, and then down to uh, down to Athens and in Corinth and he's at Corinth for a longer period than he's in the other places and this is where he has uh, he establishes another church in Corinth, eventually leaving and going to Ephesus. So that is the uh, second missionary journey. Goes back to Jerusalem to give them a report, and heads back to Antioch. And then we go to the third missionary journey, uh, which is uh, <clears throat> similar to the, the second. He goes to uh, revisits the churches from the first journey. But this time he goes into Asia, goes to Ephesus, establishes himself there, teaches for two years, and then he also travels up to uh, Macedonia. He travels to Greece, revisits all of the previous locations, and then eventually comes back on his return. He doesn't go to Ephesus. He just meets with the leaders in Miletus, and then he heads back back to uh, Jerusalem. He's trying to make it there for Pentecost. When he gets to Jerusalem... Uh the rumor is spread about the fact that he has come with a Gentile. They're assuming he's brought an uncircumcised Gentile onto the temple precinct. And this uh is the the cause that the uh Jews drum up to cause a huge riot. He's rescued by uh the the Romans, and this leads to his imprisonment. They discover a plot against him uh because Paul's nephew hears about this and alerts them to that. So the Romans moved him to Caesarea, where he's kept in prison for two years, talks to Festus and Felix and uh, Herod Agrippa II before he leaves on a ship and eventually comes to Rome. This was the uh, fourth journey I mentioned. It's not usually called the missionary journey, but, of course, uh, wherever Paul went, it was a missionary journey. And he eventually made it to Rome and is there for two years, and this is where the book of Acts ends. So the focal point of the book is on the expansion of the church. At the very beginning, it's Jewish. At the end, it's beginning to be primarily Gentile. At the beginning, it's obscure, and it's unknown, and there's just a few... uh, I think there's several thousand in in Judea and Samaria, but they're unknown. I, I think as a result of the Lord's ministry, there may have been... Thirty or 40,000 who responded to the gospel. But they're not really identified and mentioned as much. Luke focuses on the fact that there's just the 12 as the key leadership, and then there is the expansion throughout the world as a result of what they did. And it's not because of them. It's because they were willing to be used by God the Holy Spirit in this expansion um, expansion throughout the world. And it is from this base that we come to understand the background for all of the New Testament, uh, all of the New Testament epistles. We can fit that into this framework so that we have an understanding of how uh, God, the Holy Spirit, worked, and we can have an understanding to interpret those those books in light of the chronology of the life of the Apostle Paul. The Petrine epistles, the Johannine epistles, we have to fit within a little bit different framework because uh, they're not mentioned in Acts and we don't get enough historical information on their background. But the Pauline epistles can all be uh, understood within this structure, although there were three that are written afterward. uh, By understanding Acts, we can understand the background uh, for those epistles. When we come out of this, we understand that our role is to carry this on. That's the challenge for us, is to be like these early Christians, Even though the leadership are apostles, we see that they are transferring that uh, responsibility to others. Paul is training other pastors. He has his entourage that goes with him, Luke, Timothy, Epaphras, Epaphroditus. Others that were with him that went out from him were taught by him and prepared to go pastor churches this is to be a pattern that is repeated and has been repeated uh, down through the centuries down through the generations uh, from pastor to pastor and is part of the responsibility of every local church to send out missionaries in the pattern of uh, of the church of antioch but also to train future leaders and to provide for them because once we lose sight of training the, for the future then we lose the next generation. And there are a lot of challenges before us right now because of the way our culture's operating and the way the transition is being made to the next generation. There's so much pressure on the next generation to conform to the world because of what has happened in uh, the education system all the way through. Now, there are exceptions, wonderful exceptions in different places, whether it's in elementary school or junior high or high school, but the pressures continue, especially at the high school and college level, uh, in ways much greater than and much more overt than, than in times past. In fact, there was a <clears throat> a young lady at Preston City Bible Church that uh, not, bef- not long before I left uh, had started at uh, UConn, at the University of Connecticut, and she came back after a couple of weeks and was telling about a women's studies course that she was required to take her first semester, and how she said within the first 30 minutes of class, the teacher singled out everybody who had any kind of Christian background or Christian training, she managed to identify everybody and then for the rest of the time began to pointedly attack and assault their belief system in every single area that she could. And so if you have young people that are not trained within a local church that teaches the word to them to prepare them for what they will fit, they will see when they get to college, then it's, it's going to be a major problem. Now, I've seen this happen many, many times over the last 50 years. I think that most people have more problems with an intellectual assault on their faith between 18 and 25 than they do when they're much, uh, much older. After you get beyond those years, you're not in an environment where your faith and your belief system is under as much assault. And so it's at a time period when when our young people are less trained and less qualified to answer the objections against them that they come under the greatest assault. They're not fully developed intellectually yet, and that's part of the role of the local church. We have to be involved in evangelism, things that we're doing a great job of with our child evangelism fellowship classes and other things, but this carries on the ministry that was started in the early church. And again and again, as I went through Acts, I pointed out the different words that were used for proclaiming the gospel, for teaching, for instruction, for uh, proclamation, for encouragement, for explanation, that this is the focal point of the ministry. A lot of things that are secondary to what churches do. There are a lot of churches that are engaged in a lot of social Action. And I don't mean that in a social activism sense, but they're just taking care of their members, their hospital visitation, home visitations, uh, a lot of activities for young people, a lot of things that are going on. But the focal point of teaching the gospel, explaining it well, and teaching people in the congregation the content of Christian doctrine is missing. And once that disappears, the church just becomes another social organization that has little to do with its purpose and little to do with its founding. So we have to uh, take from our, from our study of the book of Acts uh, the significance of the role of the local church, that this is how God established Christians to work in this church age is through the local church. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this evening again, to just be reminded of, of the work performed uh, in the early church by God the Holy Spirit, who strengthened, enabled, empowered, protected, guided, and directed the apostles as the church expanded. Father, we are part of that flow, and as believers, we need to realize that we have a responsibility to not just to sit and study, but also to be involved. And whatever spheres of life we're in, to be involved in evangelism, to be involved in teaching, encouraging, whether it's with children or with adults or young adults, uh, that we need to have a certain measure of aggressiveness in the sense of reaching out to the unsaved and a passion about encouraging and challenging other believers to get on board studying the Word, focusing on their spiritual growth, and not just drifting along somehow trying to find a a compromise with the culture around them where they can just have a comfortable existence. Father, we pray that we might take this from the book of Acts and that God the Holy Spirit would uh, really expand our own sense of who we are as part of the body of Christ and the miraculous work that is done through us in terms of the expansion of the church, not in the sense that most people think of miracles, but in the sense that that as we go forward, it is not in our power, but in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural power. And, Father, we pray that we might not lose sight of that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.